This show was first broadcast on Free FM, Hamilton, New Zealand's community access media organisation. For more information on our lineup of shows and the role we play in the media, visit freefm.org.nz. Namai, hari mai, kiora tanakwe, Free FM 89.0, independent community media, January 2, 2022. I'm Bruce Gutt, reflecting on an event that happened in our past history. January 2, 1971, 51 years ago. Ibrox Stadium, Glasgow, the scene of a barrier collapse caused by large crowd. There was a rush down the exit steps, leaving 66 dead. This occurred during a Rangers Celtic game. This day, 1971, number one UK, Dave Edmonds. Dave Edmonds, I hear you knocking. One UK, six weeks, four US, 1971. Cosmopolitan News and Views, Free FM 89.0, Independent Community Media. Dave Edmonds, I hear you knocking. Good afternoon, Mel Driscoll. Whatever the attractions of summer, holidays luring us to beaches or to just chill out at home, 
For two train spotters, their mutual interest makes no place better to be than Frankton Junction, where the East Coast trunk line from the port of Mount Munganui joins the main trunk line at Hamilton. First, we meet Jai D. Bowman, nine, a pupil at Frankton Primary School. Hi. Hello, everyone. I would just like to talk on this radio. Thanks for inviting me. You know, you just have a, um, an amazing time in front of your family on this new year. And I would just like to talk about how I went to Tauranga, how kind of my neighbour was to take me for this amazing road trip, and how much fun I had. So I'd begin when we decided to make the plan to go to Tauranga. So he just asked us, where would you like to go? And we said Tauranga. So he said, okay, we packed everything up and we were off on a two-hour drive to Tauranga. And so when we arrived, everyone was quite excited. It was this bridge that comes basically on the main line into Tauranga Yard and it was quite by the ocean. So while we were waiting for the trains, mostly trains from Kaurau and trains from Hamilton, we saw him go over that bridge and while we were waiting I was just kind of paddling around in the water you know just sitting on the rocks and just having a really nice time and making it as much as possible on this journey we had this little road trip so after seeing those trains we went off to the Maumanganui beach I think that's what it's called and I learned how to swim I was you know just standing in the waves and having a really good time making as much progress as possible before we go back to Hamilton, is where I am now. And I was also looking at the buses, because since I'm from Hamilton, I haven't seen those buses ever before, and they're called Envaro 200, so I've been learning a little bit about buses. Yeah, so that was really cool. Took lots of photos there. I had a really good time, lots of laughs. Met two new people. They were really friendly. And we were on the beach with them. They were very kind. And so, yes, so I had a real Christmas. And hope everyone else had a nice Christmas. With friends and family. Like, go on a road trip like what I did. Just explore towns or regions that are open to you. So don't risk it. Just go for a nice road trip. Now have a nice time, like what I did with the uh, Tauranga road trip. And you'll learn lots of new things from people. You'll see a lot of new attractions. Also, Tihuya will be starting up very shortly. It will be very exciting for all the people down in Hamilton when uh, Auckland is in the uh, green light for people to come and visit. It will be really good for family and friends. Go and see your family in Hamilton or go and see your family in Auckland, which will be very good. And I think it's operating sometime in January. It'll be very exciting for a lot of people in Hamilton. However, the Northern Explorer and where the South Island Transalpiners will be shut down until further notice. A pleasure being on this radio channel today. Yes, so see you all next time I come. That's Jidey Bowman of Hamilton, a pupil of Frankton Primary School, nine years old. And now to his friend, fellow train spotter, Kurt Wilson of Wellington, making his first trip to Hamilton. I'm Kurt Wilson. I live in Wellington. 
I've just recently done a long trip to Hamilton for a first time visit. I've mainly come up to see trains since it's my biggest hobby. I like to film them and put them on my YouTube channel which I've created. I've got family up here who I'm currently staying with and I so far would have said this is the best trip I've ever been on. Experiencing Hamilton is like a whole new a whole new life, I would have said. It's quite different to just visiting places like Palmerston North and yeah, some of these other holiday places I've been to in the lower North Island. Yeah, Hamilton's been a, a big new experience for me and, and especially as I've been in Wellington my whole life. The whole 20 years, as I'm now 20 years old. Yeah, full 20 years I've been here and just been wanting to get away for a good long time to explore the rest of New Zealand and everything like that. But as I was saying before, my main interest is in trains. I do a lot of train chasing up the North Island. But most of that has been affected lately by the COVID-19 pandemic. Some storms have caused chaos on the rail network down near my area of Wellington. It's also caused washouts, slips, and things like that. So the trains are delayed and haven't been able to run. Still trying to get out there though and carry on filming the trains that are running besides the ones that are not. But yeah, this is the best experience I've had coming to Hamilton, meeting new people, filming at different stations, level crossings, and yeah, not much else to say. J.D. Bowman's friend, Kurt Wilson. Free FM 89.0 Independent Community Media Cosmopolitan News and Views New Zealand Recording Studios The equipment to record the songs Improved as the decades went on Mono became stereo Then digital Now I love listening to old mono hits Redigitized Bringing out the instruments You may never thought you would hear in a 47-year career, Rion Murtha called some 48,000 races from Addington to Rickerton, including an Interdom Grand Final at Albion Park. Murtha was the popular race caller at Addington Raceway 1971 2006, the year of his retirement. Bertha started his career at 3YZ Greymouth, asked to record a race based on musical instruments of the orchestra. The single released on HMV, the other side was the bargain sale. The NZBC played it nationally on other stations. Bertha at the time worked under Owen Owen, other personalities there at the same time, Lloyd Scott, the late Peter Sinclair, and the late Bill Toft. Good evening everyone and welcome to the Stereo Stadium for the feature work on tonight's chart, the Carnival Overture. It's being spun under playing for age conditions with 83 instruments to face the batter. Just running through the contenders now, we have number one, the drum, two, timpani, three, triangle, four is French horn, five, double bass, six, trombone, seven, first violin, 
Number eight is viola, nine is cello, ten flute, eleven second trumpet, twelve harp, thirteen piccolo, and the remaining starter is number fourteen bassoon. Now they're all tuned to go for this event, one of the feature classics on the music calendar. Just waiting for double bass to steady himself in the back row. Also waiting for second trumpet who can't find a place to park his chewing gum. Piccolo is sideways on at the present time, and now there'll be a slight delay while the player of the drum tightens his girth strap. However, while we're waiting for this attention to be carried out on the drum, we'll tell you that the LP track is in perfect condition. It has only been used on two or three occasions and there's absolutely no sign of the surface cutting out whatsoever. Clarinet is a little bit temperamental. His form has been disappointing lately. Last performance he left his run too late and slipped and fell at the double bar. There are no scratchings, by the way, no scratchings. Ah, yes, now one moment there is. There's a last-minute scratching. Timpani is scratching his left ear with the drumstick. The large attendance here is on tender hooks as we wait for this, the major item on the program to commence. Now, triangle, just making a straight line of three. The harp being straightened up. They should go any moment. This time, their away and flute failed to function altogether. First violin will be the first to get underway. Piccolo made a very sharp beginning. Double bass and bassoon were a wee bit slow, but the rest they all made harmonious starts. Now as they settle down and approach the first obstacle, a vicious double bar. French horn sounds a fiery burst of tone to be on middle C along with first violin, half a violin to viola and double bass measuring bows and the long neck to trombone who is fully extended. They move on down past the introduction and on towards the first theme. They followed some three crotchets back by cello in rather an awkward position. A quaver to the piccolo triangle and the drum bassoon is faded back and conductor is bringing up the rear. At the second of the double bars now in front of the music stands and the leaders they sighted. Play out perfectly. Oh, hello there, cello just managed to scrape over that one. Viola missed out on the dotted minimum drops in behind. Piccolo, triangle and the drum, these three, they're playing side by side. Conductor is lagging and trying to improve his position. The harp is stringing out a long last and trombone is just ahead of him. On past the exposition they go now and make their way up the scale to the big hurdle, the five flats. And first violin takes it in his turn and French horn has put in a spectacular one octave lead to take the leading role now from first violin. He drops in to get the key followed by double bass. Hello, French horn has dropped the flat there. He looked a good natural for this event but that's cost him any chance he had. Conductor is catching up with a bunch and using the stick now and he's just ahead of the drum who's receiving a good beating at this stage to improve his sound. Piccolo is whistling through on the inside. Three quavers ahead of the tiring bassoon and triangle is not making much impression. Around the turn they go and come to the last obstacle Tricky Coda, double bass, takes it sweetly, but first violin has clipped the top of the E-flat, next comes cello, trumpet and viola all in accord, and here's the harp showing a lot of pluck to move into a handy place. They're followed by the conductor who's tailed over the stage. On past the double forte they go and swing into the final bars and double bass calls a tune, but first violin is screeching away towards the outside once again. The soon has blown himself out and Piccolo is swing forth a piercing burst. The tempos are cracking now as they sort themselves out for the run-in. Conductors under the cane within striking distance of the leaders. Trombone has slid into the harp and they've both dropped their music. Only a semi-quaver separates the leaders now as double bass and first fiddle make the play in front, running note for note down the straight. And here comes the drum with a rattle as he makes his beat on the inside. You can count the rest out. It's double bass and first fiddle with the drum. The drum finishing solidly as he fights it out. Quaver to quaver with the other two. It's double bass and first fiddle and the drum but the finish, the finish, it's all over. And Looks as though first fiddle in the middle may have scraped in from the drum. Double bass just wait for the critics' confirmation, though. Piccolo arrived in fourth place three bars back. And another bar behind him was the trumpet with two quavers, two conductor, who only looked like once having control of the race. Flute tootled out early and bassoon was also blown early in the piece. Trombone and harp caused some discord at the final obstacle and triangle was never in the race. Now the critics, they have confirmed those placings. 
The winner was first violin, second was the drum, and double bass was third. The event has run in the good time of 3 minutes 45 and 3 fifth seconds, a new HMV record. This is Cosmopolitan News and Views. Dr. Kate Dews, appointed an officer of the New Zealand Order of Merit in 2001, former head girl at Hamilton Girls High School, and co-director and co-founder of Disarmament and Security Centre, which is found in Riccarton. The peace city ideal that had been adopted by our city in Christchurch in 2002 to acknowledge Christchurch as the first nuclear-free city 20 years before that, and as the first peace city in New Zealand. So Roy was the powerhouse behind getting this World Peace Bell for Christchurch and having it in the Botanic Gardens. He was an absolute powerhouse of commitment. He'd ridden his bike all over Japan and built up support with the World Peace Bell Association in Japan. But what's significant about this particular bell is that it came in a tradition of peace bells that had been gifted by a Japanese group. And in fact, it was a former mayor of Iwo Jima in Shikoku who presented a token of peace to the UN in 1954. And that was this bell. It's built in the middle of the UN area where I've been to and what's wonderful is that it's actually based on soil from Hiroshima and Nagasaki and every time when the UN General Assembly starts every year in about October there are prayers held there and often led by the UN Secretary General. So it's a very important international organisation And what's good about it is that in 1982, a World Peace Bill Association was formed in Japan and they had cooperation from ambassadors representing 128 nations. But in the Christchurch Bell, is made of coins and medals and mixed with copper. And that's from 103 countries that this is done. There's only 21 bells worldwide in 17 countries. So... We're very fortunate to have one in Christchurch and Roy's been part of our group with the Disarmament Security Centre and the World Peace Bell Association and we use the bell in the Botanic Gardens as a focus for lots of groups, particularly honouring what happened at Hiroshima and Nagasaki in 1945 and the International Days of Peace, for example, the 21st of September is a UN International Day Against Nuclear Tests There's one also for elimination of nuclear weapons and there's a disarmament week. So what happens often is groups go to the bell and they ring the bell in the garden and it's a wonderful place for people to gather because there's a camphor tree that's been planted there from the mayor of Nagasaki and there's a ponamu just beneath the bell which when it rings it actually sounds in Nagasaki where I've actually placed some matching ponamu from that under what is a sculpture in the Nagasaki Peace Park, which was donated by the government and by the six cities of New Zealand, including Christchurch. And that ponamu is a spiritual link between our two cities. So every time it is rung, we know that it is connecting with Japan. And so that's very significant and was very significant for Roy. So we're very lucky to have it and... We hope that anyone coming to Christchurch will come and visit it in the Botanic Gardens. I grew up in Hamilton in the 
Steve's and and Steve's went through Hamilton Girls High School. My time here at school when I was actually head girl, some of us were given permission from our parents to see a film called The War Game, which was held in the Founders Theatre, I think. And we had to bring our parents with us because it was such a significant film. It was about the bombing using a nuclear bomb in Britain that had been banned at the time but some of us as senior students were allowed to go. That was life-changing for me because I hadn't learned about the effects of nuclear weapons at all through my schooling. I didn't know about Hiroshima or Nagasaki. And so when I left school, trained as a music teacher and went up to Auckland and started teaching at Epsom Girls, one of the first jobs I had as a music teacher was to actually teach a piece of music for school certificates. Students called Brenady to the victims of Hiroshima which was about a song of lament for them. And that opened my eyes into what happened in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. You can't teach about music unless you know the content. So I learned about the victims of those cities and got photographs and stories from them and read the book John Hersey and got the students to read that. And at the same time, as a young person in Auckland, I met up with people in the Peace Foundation who were teaching peace studies and teaching about the effects of nuclear weapons. But also at the same time, I was involved in helping with the peace squadrons, which were the little boats that went out on the harbour to try and stop visits of nuclear-powered and nuclear-armed warships coming into our harbour. So this is the mid-1970s. And at the same time, while I was teaching at Epsom Girls, I collected signatures for what was called Campaign Half Million, which was to try and get half a million signatures to stop nuclear power coming into New Zealand. So both the issues of nuclear power and nuclear weapons were very important for me. After two or three years at Epsom Girls, I went to England to study peace studies at one of the universities in England and came back to Christchurch where I decided to start a branch of the Peace Foundation in Christchurch and ran what became the Peace Foundation Disarmament Security Centre from my home. I've been doing that for over 40 years and it was really to get peace education into schools, into universities and to teach our students, especially in the South Island, about not just the effects of nuclear weapons but teaching conflict resolution, teaching about war toys, but also got very involved in running a group called the Peace Collective. And from that little Peace Collective, we grew into 40 different groups, including a lot of church groups, and helped get Christchurch as the first nuclear-free city by declaring our homes and schools and streets and universities, etc., nuclear-free. And so in 1982, we were the first nuclear-free city and that grew. We supported the move to get New Zealand nuclear-free, which we achieved in 1987. And my life path took me all over the world. In the end, I was appointed to the first public advisory committee on disarmament and arms control, which was part of the Nuclear-Free Act, when New Zealand basically banned the visits of nuclear-powered and armed warships which of course caused a huge rift in the ANZUS alliance. But also at that time I was put onto a government delegation to the United Nations and I was at the special session on disarmament, the only woman on the New Zealand government delegation. 
And that gave me an opportunity to sound out a proposal to take a case to the International Court of Justice to get nuclear weapons declared illegal. And after 10 years of my life working with people from all around New Zealand but all over the world, a group of us really succeeded in getting a resolution through both the World Health Organization and the UN General Assembly to ask the International Court of Justice in The Hague for an advisory opinion on the legality of nuclear weapons. So that was quite an amazing thing because the court actually, in the end, gave an opinion which said that the threat or use of nuclear weapons would generally be contrary to the rules of international law applicable in armed conflict, and in particular the principles and rules of humanitarian law. That was in 1996, and three years ago... I was at the negotiations in the United Nations for a treaty on the prohibition of nuclear weapons, which effectively fulfilled what the court had said in 1996, which was a very exciting time for us to be there with some of our young students who are now taking over our disarmament and security centre. They were there in the UN. They were keen to ensure that we've now got a treaty banning nuclear weapons and we've got about 54 countries already signed up. So those are significant issues that we work on in Christchurch in particular, but one of the others is, of course, this declaration of a peace city where we've been able to get a world peace bill in the Botanic Gardens. Now there's talk of a, a peace park in an area that has been earthquake ruined in terms of the land. Cat Stevens has just given a peace train to Christchurch with what happened after the terrible massacre here. That could possibly be involved either at the Botanic Gardens and or this new peace centre, peace park we might have. We work with the city council to promote a peace city and that's been very important for us when you think of the what we've been through with earthquakes but also with the terrible mosque massacre. We show a lot of peace education material in schools. I've taught peace studies at Canterbury University for 20 years, part-time, and that's been important. We've worked closely with the Nuclear Free and Independent Pacific Movement, but mainly getting areas declared nuclear-free zones or teaching content about our history as a country that has stood out on not just banning nuclear weapons, but also promoting peace. We've worked on things like opposing rocket lab in Mahia because of its potential link with the military, but also with nuclear weapons targeting. We have worked closely with the group in Dunedin where there's a Centre for Peace and Conflict Studies now. Canterbury was hoping we would get a centre for that at the university, but with the earthquakes, we couldn't house it here. We also work closely with Māori groups and Parihaka elders stay here in this whare, um, our house. Moriori people from Chatham Islands who have a peace tradition, Waitaha, Parihaka. And our young students are great now, the young people who've taken over looking after the Disarmament Security Centre. They've got a wonderful website of resources for teachers because now history of our anti-nuclear policy especially is becoming part of the curriculum. So they hold regular meetings by Zoom with young people, not just in New Zealand, but overseas as well. And they have a very high social media output. They've started a group at the university called University of Canterbury Disarm. 
So I feel very blessed as I retire to look back on a life committed to peace work with my husband, Robert, who used to fly nuclear weapons around for the British government but has changed his mind. I see young people still being motivated by our nuclear-free policy and our promotion of peace within our region, but also internationally. And that gives me hope for the future, that we will see a treaty that will succeed in getting all countries to abolish nuclear weapons, and that as we work through as a peace city, and more peace cities are promoted around New Zealand, that we will have a country that continues to take leadership in the United Nations and elsewhere on issues to do with peace and conflict resolution. And I think we have a wonderful young Prime Minister who's modelling that for the world. So on that note, I'll leave with a sense of hope. Anyone listening, if they want to join up and follow what we do on our website, www.disarmsecure.org. And if anyone wants to look at the World Peace Bell, there's www.worldpeacebell.newzealand and there's details of the history of the bell. But there's also one, if you Google Peace Cities, you'll see a big write-up about Christchurch as a peace city. And I hope that will encourage you as a listener to take action in your own area and see what you can do in your own home and your own city. All the best. Thank you. Dr Kate Dews. Appointed an officer of the New Zealand Order of Merit in 2001, former head girl at Hamilton Girls High School, and co-director and co-founder of Disarmament and Security Centre, which is found in Rickerton. With your retirement, some reluctance to retreat from matters of peace and security, perhaps you never will, Kate. Probably not. I think I'll be doing this till I pass, but I'm doing it now with my grandchildren which is great. Thank you. We're all going on a summer holiday No more working for a week or two Fun and laughter on a summer holiday No more worries for me or you For a week or two We're going where the sun shines brightly We're going where the sea is blue We've seen it in the movies Now let's see if it's true Everybody has a summer holiday Doing things they always wanted to So we're going on a summer holiday To make our dreams come true sun shines brightly We're going where the sea is blue We've seen it in the movies Now let's see if it's true Everybody has a summer holiday Doing things they always wanted to So we're going on a summer holiday To make our dreams come true me and you 
hardly have the soldiers come home to Honakiwi after World War II, then the community takes concrete action to build their own community hall as a centre for all kinds of activities to keep in touch with each other. Until now, they had relied on a party line phone, weekly mail delivery, the Auckland Weekly News and Aunt Daisy on the radio to know the latest events. The settlers band together to form the Honikiwi Social Club and Hall Committee and attract the patronage of a registered architect with local links, Mr H.C. Grierson, and he designs the proposed building. The committee approaches the Peter Fraser government for financial support, aiming to revitalise, now the veterans have come home, New Zealand's country communities. The government offers in 1947 a one-to-one subsidy on local fundraising. The Hall Committee sets to work with a will, inspired by the years of uncertainty, rationing and the grief of World War. It has a £1,000 quote on Mr Grierson's design, taking into account an offer from men in the district to volunteer their labour on a roster of four of them each day on the site. They work it out on an assumption that individuals set aside one day a week to be there to help, thus capturing the spirit of country cooperation. Ensuring warm welcome within the community hall as winter grips the king country, a local brickie, Philip Phillips, takes delivery of 2,500 bricks to the Honikiwi site. Chimney construction, however, is truly for a tradesman. So Philip Phillips takes on a loan, works weekend after weekend to get the job done, refusing to take a penny of payment. That's typical of the will to make the community hall a project to be proud of. They organise dances and socials, having acquired over the years the reputation at Honikiwi as being good entertainers. And Budden's Barn is a popular place for a party. A community hall ought to provide a piano. Honikiwi women folk take up the challenge, raising funds to cover its cost. Mr. and Mrs. Tom Cotter donate standing trees of theirs to cut. And they're carted to Otrahonga for milling into planks to build the community hall, which thanks to everyone's generosity, opens debt-free. A grand effort, in the words of the Waitomo MP, Walter James Broadfoot, speaking at its official opening on June 1952. Residents can be justly proud. I feel confident that such an amenity in the district will go a long way to keeping the youth on the land. Honikiwi District lists 48 men who served in the World Wars. In their absence, women had rallied to the call to take on manual, labour-intensive farming tasks to keep the land producing. There's a wave of patriotism that goes through the country like a packet of salts. So every boy in our group rushes to enlist in the Army, in the Navy, in the Air Force. Farewell parties, pretty dresses hairdos, drugs, not on a horizon, drink, well, 
The boys might have a few after a football game, perhaps, but that's not part of our mixed social occasions. Make no mistake, you can have fun without it. We don't dwell on the reality that some will be killed or come home wounded. I'm 21 when World War II is declared. My future husband Charles farms with his parents, just a mile or two from town, just beyond Te Aumutu. These are Dorothy West's happiest days as a young woman. Once the surviving soldiers, sailors and airmen come home, it's to romance, marry and father families. So the cycle of life continues with a baby boom, adding impetus. Of her husband, Charles, she recalls how his family lacking men to carry on the farm after two died, looked to him to return home. The Navy grants Charles compassionate leave from his instructor's role. Dorothy happily embraces her new life as a housewife and farm girl working at her husband's side. What kind of person is he? Fun-loving and kindly, thoughtful and hard-working. The good years before he becomes ill. We make the most of them. During the war, I had my hands full, so travel was out of the question. Our chance to experience together the world comes with Japan's hosting for the first time of the Olympic Summer Games in 1964. Organised to perfection, even the weather. Dawn's curtain is drawn aside to reveal a morning crisp and clear for opening day. This, after recent cloud and rain, is a good omen. We think best to start out early in case of congested traffic. We needn't have worried. From our downtown hotel to the Olympic Stadium, the expressway runs smooth with the traffic completely orderly. It goes a long way to restoring Japan's reputation after the misery of World War II. Yesterday, December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy. The United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan. The United States was at peace with that nation and at the solicitation of Japan was still in conversation with its government and its emperor looking toward the maintenance of peace in the Pacific. Indeed, one hour after Japanese air squadrons had commenced bombing in the American island of Oahu, the Japanese ambassador to the United States and his colleague delivered to our Secretary of State a formal reply to a recent American message. And while this reply stated that it seemed useless to continue the existing diplomatic negotiations, it contained no threat or hint of war or of armed attack. It will be recorded that the distance of Hawaii from Japan 
makes it obvious that the attack was deliberately planned many days or even weeks ago. During the intervening time, the Japanese government has deliberately sought to deceive the United States by false statements and expressions of hope for continued peace. The attack yesterday on the Hawaiian Islands has caused severe damage to American naval and military forces. I regret to tell you that very many American lives have been lost. In addition, American ships have been reported torpedoed on the high seas between San Francisco and Honolulu. Yesterday, the Japanese government also launched an attack against Malaya. Last night, Japanese forces attacked Hong Kong. Last night, Japanese forces attacked Guam. Last night, Japanese forces attacked the Philippine Islands. Last night, the Japanese attacked Wake Island. And this morning, the Japanese attacked Midway Island. Japan has therefore undertaken a surprise offensive extending throughout the Pacific area. The facts of yesterday and today speak for themselves. The people of the United States have already formed their opinions and well understand the implications to the very life and safety of our nation. As Commander-in-Chief of the Army and Navy, I have directed that all measures be taken for our defense, but always will our whole nation remember the character of the onslaught against us. No matter how long it may take us to overcome this premeditated invasion, the American people in their righteous might will win through to absolute victory. that I interpret the will of the Congress and of the people when I assert that we will not only defend ourselves to the uttermost, but will make it very certain that this form of treachery shall never again endanger us. triumph, so help us God. I ask that the Congress declare that since the unprovoked and dastardly attack 
by Japan on Sunday, December 7, 1941, a state of war has existed between the United States and the Japanese Empire. anyway, 
I got through that, the ballet examiner said to my teacher, Peggy Holmes, put him in for the scholarship. Well, that was a bit of a, a surprise. Anyway, I had a week to learn a dance and train for that. And at the end of the week, I did the exam and I found I got it. So that was a, a bit of a shock. Meanwhile, I was in various performances for Big Home School, and Irina Kalnins came knocking. There were very few male dancers in Christchurch, as you could well imagine, and she said, I'm doing a ballet, and I would like to include two boys, but I don't have them in my school. Can I borrow yours? And Peggy Holmes, surprised, said, yes, certainly. So my friend Grant Wright, who was a co-dancer with me, and I went along to Irina Kellner's school and was part of a production. Now, it was quite a change for me because I had learned the technique from Peggy Holmes as best I could, and also she taught me the value of the music, and the music she instilled into me has lived with me for the rest of my life. I adore music, classical music anyway, but ballet music said something slightly different, and it was wonderful to, uh, to be able to dance to that. When Irina uh, got hold of me, she taught me how dramatic dance could be, and that was quite a surprise to me. I learned a lot in the very few months I was with her, but I learned a lot from her about the expression of the music and the expression in the dance. I thoroughly enjoyed it. I found her an inspiring teacher. But unfortunately, the previous scholarship that I mentioned brought me away from New Zealand and took me to London. So unfortunately, I had to say goodbye to both Peggy Holmes and Irina, and, uh, and also, sadly, my family. Though I went to London... It was to train, first of all, at the Royal Ballet School, which was part of the scholarship deal. They paid for the fees. And then, after a year, I joined the Royal Opera House as a dancer to dance in ballet in the uh, operas, like Aida. Well, there was lots of them, really. I can think of Tales of Hoffman, Aida, Carmen, De Rosen Cavalier, Othello, Lucia de Lamabot. It was a fantastic performance at Coffin Garden, and it had Joan Sutherland, that famous Australian soprano. And, well, she brought the house down. I remember standing on the stage when she came down the stairs. She was covered in blood on the stage, and she just killed her would-be suitor and sang this wonderful aria. And at the end of that aria, her voice rose above a full forte orchestra and chorus. Her voice sailed over the top. It brought hair standing up on the back of my neck. It was wonderful. Anyway, that was a very brilliant introduction to opera for me. And from there, I did various performances. I was in the production of The Tempest with music by Henry Purcell. But it wasn't his original production. It was a, a botched-up one, really. It was dramatic in its way, but it missed the whole story of The Tempest, really. Included in the cast, there was a, a very well-known New Zealand actress called, if I can remember her name, if my memory is gone. Now, Rosalind Atkinson, that's right. Now, she'd be well-known to New Zealand audiences, as I know, but she was super in that. She had a, a minor character. She was uh, not a nice character, but she played it brilliantly. But I enjoyed that. It was only for a few weeks, really, for the production, but that, again, gave me another chink in my armour as a dancer. From there, I joined London Festival Ballet and went touring with them, first of all, around this country. 
In fact, the day after I joined them, I was taken on a six-week tour of Europe. I had a wonderful time, but quite a surprise. But I had to learn very quickly because, of course, I knew none of their ballets. And during the day, they, I was learning the ballets and at night performing them. So it was a bit of a, a fast learning experience. But we came back to London and just in time for the annual event of Nutcracker at the Royal Festival Hall. And they produced Nutcracker for 10 weeks. And we played every night. It was eight times a week, two matinees and six performances in the evening. Uh, that was enjoyable and a rather difficult stage because it was really an orchestral stage and there were big, rather huge steps around the back of the stage. So if you came quickly off the stage, you had to start running up the stairs before you could get off properly. But anyway, we managed that. It was a super, super experience. After touring with the Festival Ballet for about a year and a half, I had a couple of injuries and my body said, hey, this is getting too much. Try something a little easier. So I decided to leave the, the ballet company and try my hand at musicals in London. There were a lot of them on audition racks. I entered my name on the usual list at Equity to audition for these, and I got a surprise telephone call from one of the managers of My Fair Lady, which was just running into its fifth year at Drury Lane in London. So, a vacancy, would you like to audition for it? I see. Yes, please, that would be lovely. So I went along and uh, did the audition, sang for the first time in my life on a stage. All I wanted a room somewhere from my fair lady and got the job. So I spent the next year dancing at Drury Lane in My Fair Lady. It was a lovely show, a beautiful show, wonderful to be in, wonderful songs, wonderful dancers. Never a dull moment. It wasn't like the opera. An opera used to have a lot of times on stage holding up spears or holding up something, but not actually doing any dance. But this one was dance all the way. At the end of that, they were going to go on tour, and I decided I didn't really want to go on tour. I thought of joining another show. But then I thought, no, hang on, I'm going to chance to see the rest of England, which I've not been seen before. So I decided to uh, go on tour with them. And I thought it was only for six months. But in actual fact, it took two and a half years out of my life. I thoroughly enjoyed it. We've been to Manchester and Glasgow. We spent nearly a year in Glasgow and Nottingham, a number of cities around the country. I fortunately met a young lady who became part of the chorus. She was from Manchester Singing College, Manchester College of Music. She joined the company as well in the chorus, and we got friendly, and uh, I finished up by marrying her. And I've been married to her for 56 years. So, an introduction. Anyway, at the end of the ballet touring, I decided that my body was no longer able to keep up with what I really wanted to do. So I thought, um, try something a little more relaxing. So I foolishly, in a way, decided to become a school teacher. And I joined a teacher training college for mature students. did a three-year course in two years. They condensed it. I became a primary school teacher which I had been for the rest of my working life. I never regretted my choice. My experience in teaching was the most wonderful thing that I think I could have done. And it, it brought out the best in me, sometimes the worst, but I never, <laughs> never in school. Yes, from there, I finally retired to a bowling green, and that's where I have been ever since. I've had a, a super life. And a charmed life. I've never been out of work, which is rare in the theatre world. And I've been very fortunate. I think I've just about run short of memories. 
other than the sad one, which was to really never see my parents again, because when I came to England, it was a bit difficult to get back. I tried at one time, but when my father was ill, that didn't succeed. And from there, I really lost touch with my family, although fortunately, my sister was able to come over to see me several times, and that was a lovely experience. And once I went out with my wife to introduce her to the joys of New Zealand, and she met some of my family for the first time. That was a joyful experience, although I must admit the rain let us down. It started in Auckland, and the rain cloud followed us all the way around New Zealand, I think. But, um, but anyway, that was a, still a, a very happy experience. I think I've come up to date. So we've settled in Manchester, and here I am sitting in my house, a big Victorian house with a lovely garden, and I've had a lovely family who are now left and flown the nest, and some grandchildren. I think it's a very happy life that I have enjoyed and I hope the things I put into it have been appreciated by all the other people I've met. Pupils that I taught, my fellow dancers and my fellow bowlers who have been great friends with me. I think I have just about finished all the story of my life really. Thank you very much. Hey, tam jez na charli vodi, siada na konko za głody, czule żeg na sieć dziewczyno, jeszcze czule z Ukrainą. Hej, 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 sokoły, omijajcie góry lasy doły, zwoń, 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 zwoneczku, mój stepowy skoroneczku. Hej, 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 sokoły, Oh, 
My name is Anne Sklenners, and my understanding is that my dad was Dorothy West's cousin. And unfortunately, I never got the chance to meet Dorothy. Um, I did get an invitation to her 100th birthday, but was unable to make that. And I was all geared to go up to visit her, and she died before I got there. So I was very disappointed about that. Just my own recollection of being a Sklenners in the Sklenners clan. Fortunately, um, now I can pronounce my own name. When I was a child, I couldn't pronounce my surname. And so when I was growing up, people would ask me my name, and I'd say, Anne Sklenners. And they'd say, Glenis who? And I'd go, no, Anne and is that with an E? Yes, that's with an E. And what's your family name? Oh, forget it, I'd say. It was all too hard to say it and to spell it. And very often people would say, Oh, what a funny name. Where does that come from? And of course, growing up, I had no idea where the Sklenners gang came from. I do remember visiting and staying with my nana and pop Sklenners. That's my dad, Ned, his parents. And they always seemed to come from another world. They were quaint. Their house was on Boundary Road, directly opposite the Claudelands Trotting Centre. And it had one of those rooms that children were never allowed to go in, a front parlour. And they had a toilet outside with a big long chain, which seemed very strange to us kids. And they boiled the kettle on the agar, you know, fire range. There was sort of another worldliness about them when we were growing up. Upon listening to some of the episodes from Dorothy's books, I've really connected with her sense of adventure, her journeys. And for me, after many years of not knowing where I came from, I had the great privilege in about 2005 to visit the Czech Republic. I had done some research um, from where we came from, where our village was in southern Czech Republic, in what was previously known as Bohemia. And so armed with that little piece of knowledge, I visited the Czech Republic. Um, one of our sisters was there, and she was teaching at the English language school. And she had gotten to know some Czech people who were kind enough to drive us down, pass through Trebonia, right down to the border. And, of course, we needed them for language. And it was extraordinary to pull up at the village of Magdala and to look to my right at the hurricane wire fence 
and see my family name in great big letters. At that moment I cried, and on reflection I think it was because at last I found out that we came from somewhere. We, I belonged. I, I found the place where, where I had come from. There was a place that I came from after all of these years. And so the exploration began. And um, we asked people, do you recognize the name? And yes, they did. And of course, the pronunciation was Sklenash. Um, it had been anglicized somewhat when, the, when people came to New Zealand. And so that was a great, great visit for me. So, upon recollection, did Dorothy and I share the Bohemian DNA? And maybe we did. And so on further research, my dad was Dorothy's cousin. And my grandfather came to New Zealand as a very small boy with his father. Now, the generation, my dad was much older, so I, I don't know much about that generation or the early life, and I will be delighted to read Dorothy's books to gain some more understanding of our shared DNA. As I listened to Dorothy's account of life in Honokiwi, I did have a familiar name, and that was the name of Ernie Sklenners. And I think maybe at some stage when I was very little, I met Ernie because he was the Citroen man of the Waikato. So I've been away from the Waikato for about the last 20 years, just returning about five years ago. And coming home is meaning I'm meeting more and more of the Sklenners clan. Going back to Dorothy, I can connect a little bit with her sense of wandering and adventure. I connect with her delight in exploring new countries and new cultures and the way she explains those. I myself have lived in places like the Philippines and Myanmar and Cambodia, where my life as a religious sister has enabled me to share in the incredible diversity of culture and religion. Dorothy's journeys and her golden years to England and Borneo and tracking the orangutans, then to Mexico and Africa. This is what really excited me and confirms that we really do share a DNA. So back to my journeys in the Czech Republic. I was told that I even looked Czech. In that time I had much darker hair than I do now and my blue eyes must have stood out with the blue coat and scarf I was wearing. So that journey from feeling and being very strange 
a singular family, growing into a much wider clan, the Sklenner's clan. And I'm really grateful for this because I no longer feel odd and unnamed and weird. But I proudly feel like the daughter of and the cousin of and being connected to this much bigger clan of being Sklenners. And I think that that feeling of being connected is really important and probably a journey for many, many people. And as I sit here musing and reflecting, I'm really grateful to Dorothy for her story. Her story that is connected to my story and that has become our story. I was told that the last Sklenners died in that Magdala village just before I had arrived. I felt sad about that as well. I also met the mayor of that village and he bore an incredible resemblance to my dad. Even when I brought the photo home and showed my mum, she went, oh my goodness, he is like your father. I learned of the beginnings of glass making in 1734. You see, the meaning of Sklenners is glazier. You know, one of those characters who fixes our glass when it breaks. And so my heightened interest and love of the artwork through glass has become all the more important to me in discovering more of who we are as the Sklenners clan. And so I too look forward to reading more and more of her stories. And who knows, there may be another generation of Sklenners stories to come. May walking Aotearoa end to end be a good New Year resolution. Let's ask an Australian who recently crossed Cook Strait on his second leg of Te Araroa Trail, our national walkway, Ian Hibbert. Last uh, Sunday or fortnight ago, you'd got as far as Methven, having forded many rivers, and when you said you were submerged almost up to your neck, Ian. Yes, almost up to my neck at the Deception River, the other side of Arthur's Pass. This week has been a, a much easier week and a spectacular week as well. After I left Methven, I toured up to the other side of the Rakaia River, trekked over to the Rangitata River. The Rangitata River is not able to be forded, it's not able to be crossed. So I, in a very remote area, I had a lift up, a person picked me up and drives me down to Geraldine, where I stayed for Christmas dinner and put on a few pounds, which was uh, very rewarding for me. He then... After two days, we waited an extra day because of thunderstorms up on the ranges. He took me up to the other side of the Rangitata River and I trekked with an old trekking mate from the Richmond Ranges, Dr. Matt, 
we trekked over and up to the highest point in the whole TA Trail, which was Stag Pass or Stag Saddle, 1,925 metres. Where do we find that, Ian? That is just before, from the top of Stag Saddle, you can look down on Lake Tekapo. You can also look across for a magnificent view of Mount Cook and Mount Tasman. It is a spectacular ridge walking down from the saddle to Lake Tekapo via a small hut, an overnight hut, where I stayed last night. And from that hut, I walked nearly 50 kilometres today to get to Tekapo Village. So all in all, very rewarding week of trekking in the mountains. How's the weather been? Well, since that thunderstorm where I delayed my continuation, it's been perfect weather, Melbourne. We've had the last two days especially has been very clear skies. The turquoise of Lake Tekapo shone through or showed up quite uh, magnificently yesterday and today. Being a mountaineer of some note, do you feel more at home among the taller peaks of the Southern Alps, even if they are small by comparison with the Alps of Europe or Peru? Oh yes, I get an extra step, (laughs) an extra step when I see these peaks, looking over at Mount Cook and Tasman and a few others, I remember when I'd climbed them brought back a lot of memories so I I do recall climbing in the past when I see these white capped peaks ice covered peaks you're now in the centre of a tourist region not so much activity perhaps as in past years how do you feel when you have a day like today 50 kilometres when others are (laughs) cavorting about in light aircraft or scheduled flights that take them where you've been just in a matter of minutes Yes, as a matter of fact, I saw that today. Helicopters flying up to the ranges, up to Stag Pass and other areas, and flying above us. But it was very lonely where we were. We did not come across many trekkers. Only two other trekkers did we see yesterday and today, and a few people on mountain bikes. And that's all that we saw on the ranges themselves, which is surprising because the weather has been just perfect. You mentioned having reached and passed the highest point on Te Araroa Trail. Is it all downhill from now? Well, I think it is, yes. That's the highest point, and down towards Bluff, there are some interesting ranges to traverse. The most difficult sections are certainly behind me. So I'm going to enjoy a lot of beautiful views around Lake Wanaka, Lake Wakatipu and further on towards Tiar now in the coming two weeks. Are you photographing as you go? I did bring a camera, a small instant camera, point and shoot, but I had that sent to Christchurch because I don't really need it. I'm using my phone for taking photos and that's sufficient. You're tired after a day like this? Yes. Like today, no doubt. How's the knee? The knee's coming along quite well, Melvin. It does hurt uh, from time to time, especially climbing down, but I've been able to put up with it for more than three months, so I think I can put up with it for another three or four weeks. Let's hope it doesn't reverse how it is when you stop walking. No, I think it should be okay. I had a hyaluronic acid injection earlier this year, which is starting to wear off, 
So it is hurting a little bit, but it's only arthritis and lack of cushioning, so that's just something that I have to put up with, and I think ibuprofen painkillers is the answer at the moment. When you mention bluff, it brings us to consider the decision that you then make as to what to do. Yes, after Bluff I'll go to Stewart Island. There are a couple of good treks there and hopefully the weather will be fine. After I spend a few weeks in Stewart Island, I'll be preparing to go back to the Himalayas, providing it's safe to do so. Something to look at in the near future. And something we're all wondering about this year and its future. Yes, and uh, Happy New Year, your listeners. Hello everyone. I'm going to talk about the origins of mankind. Now, scientists always say that we all evolved the human race in Africa. And by that, I mean all humans. I disagree with that, although it is classed as scientific fact. Well, let's look at it logical perspective. Africans native to Africa... I do believe they originated from Africa and therefore they could have been the very first humans to walk the planet. But as far as other cultures and races are concerned, for example, Chinese, I don't believe they evolved in Africa. I believe they evolved in China. Same with India. India would have evolved in India. And Australia, Aborigines would have evolved in Australia. Europeans in Europe. Skulls have been unearthed in Europe dating back over two million years. The fact is that scientists have always said that different people evolved from Africa, got in to makeshift boats and sailed to different countries, and therefore the human race would have expanded in that particular country. It sounds a bit science fiction, really. It's a bit like Noah's Ark, for example. Scientists have searched for remnants of it on the mountain that it ended up after the flood. Well, really, I find that a bit hard to believe, really. When you consider every species of animals, two by two, where did they all come from? Not all animals live in one country aboard the ark. So scientists say, oh yes, we all come from Africa. There's scientific evidence that says that. Well, probably the DNA would be the same, no matter what country you come from. So all these factors should be taken into account. I can't imagine someone sailing around the globe millions of years ago. What sort of craft would they have used? And Aborigines in particular, they've been there for a lot longer than people realise. Scientists will probably disagree with what I said, but uh, I think in time to come they will realise that what I'm saying is actually true. I think the Big Bang caused everything that we see in our galaxy. Well, maybe this galaxy has been here longer than we realise. Was the Big Bang, perhaps a supernova, was can spread out over 50 light years? Could that be from a supernova? Because that could still have rippling sound effects detected even to this day. Could be stars have been born and dying as we speak. That couldn't be possible if it all happened 14 and a half billion years ago. And how big is space? The furthest known galaxy is 14 and a half billion light years away. I believe there's universes well beyond the universe that we have. There could be trillions of universes out there. Space is infinite. It has no beginning and it has no end.
Quite true what they say in Star Trek, space is the final frontier. Our contributor, Trevor, is an artist living in Hamilton. Thanks for listening to this Free FM podcast. If you want to hear more content like this, you can support Free FM via Patreon. Head to patreon.com slash freefm89 to find out more.